ESPN Tournament Challenge is here. And guess what? I'm doing my bracket right now. Making picks, predicting upsets, winning my bracket group, and leaving my old life as a part-time voice actor behind. Hey, you never know. And if I can do it while recording this awesome commercial, you can too. Anyone can bracket. Download the ESPN Tournament Challenge app to play the number one bracket game. Presented by Allstate. A word of warning, this episode contains mature language and graphic descriptions of sexual assault, abuse, and other disturbing behavior. A list of resources is available in the show description and on our website. Power is something that we decide to give to someone. Half a billion people has been benefited directly, indirectly, from Bikram Yoga around the globe. He spent so much time, effort, years, hiring, firing, yelling, screaming, throwing shit around, trying to get this to be his in the eyes of the entire universe. He has no power over what we decide to do or how we teach. It's his teaching, his charisma, his knowledge. That's what has value. But power is something that is perceived. Part 3. Power. When Kim Schreiber's sister took her to her first Bikram yoga class, it didn't quite go as planned. I actually, I walked out on my first Bikram yoga class. (laughs) But Kim came back. And she came back again and again. She was battling with mental illness, and the yoga quickly became something she needed and wanted to keep doing. It helped me with my depression and bipolar issues. The yoga was helping, and she credited her teacher, Bikram. He kind of saved my life because at one point I was pretty suicidal. So um, I describe him as somebody that really saved my life. Kim signed up for the very first Bikram yoga teacher training in 1994. It was messy and disorganized as a whole, Kim says, but it did exactly what it set out to do. Prepare eager students like Kim to teach a Bikram yoga class and inspire those people to want to open studios. And upon graduating, Kim did just that. She opened Bikram Yoga Costa Mesa. Bikram himself had picked the location for her. It was the first studio in Orange County, California. He was proud and supportive, and Kim was excited to start spreading Bikram yoga in her community. And about a year after she opened her studio, a new student came in to take class, Mark Morrison. I love the uh, intensity of the workout. I love the sweat. But I really like the, uh, the, the owner of the studio. <laughs> so uh, that's what kept me coming back. Mark and Kim began dating, and not long after, she took him up to L.A. for the yoga equivalent of meeting the family, taking class with her mentor and teacher, Bikram. But right away, Mark didn't like what he saw. Why your fucking knee is still not locked? Bring your mind back from Uranus, Neptune, Pluto to Olympic Boulevard in my class. Think of it. The way he treated people just simply wasn't kind. It was, in my opinion, disrespectful, abrasive, obnoxious, the comments that he made. Sit! Oi! Sit down! Yes! Now touch the toes! And nobody seemed to be safe. He was 
to me, just simply wasn't a kind person. It doesn't take too long to form an opinion that this guy is just a con man. Mark felt that Bikram was in it for himself, that he was using yoga and the trappings of authenticity as a way to get rich quick. I didn't attribute it to him. To me, he was just the messenger. The real content was the yoga. That was the real gift. And yoga has been around for thousands of years, so I'm not going to attribute it to one human being. As much as he wanted people to believe that he was, you know, solely responsible and, and he was a god and he was the gift and he was, you know, Jesus Christ. Mark didn't like Bikram, and the feeling was mutual. Bikram could tell a mile away that Mark wasn't on his side. And so when Mark and Kim started to get really serious, Bikram took her to lunch and told her that. You know, she should leave me. But Kim didn't leave Mark. In fact, she married him. And Mark, who was a lawyer and had also studied finance, told Kim he would help her with her studio business. But there was one condition. You need to... to separate yourself from Bikram and change the name of the studio. We need to, we need to break away or else I, I don't want to have anything to do with the studio. I was resistant. I was confused. And somewhere deep inside of me, I knew that that's what needed to happen. I, I knew. And it was painful. It took him almost a year to decide that her husband was right it was time to make the change. I called Bikram and asked him for his blessing and told him what our name was going to be. And of course, he didn't give me his blessing. This was the first, very first time that I, I chose to go against him. So that was huge. And in his mind, he felt, I know he felt betrayed. He felt betrayed, but more importantly, he felt threatened. And so he took a step to ensure that he would always have control of his yoga. He copyrighted it. All of it. American way. Make Bikram Yoga. Copyright, trademark, franchising, patent. The Justice Department, the government will protect you. American way. Back in 1985, Bikram had sued Raquel Welch for ripping off his yoga series. Are you in great shape and want to stay that way, but you're looking for a method to maintain your high standards? Then I made this video for you. But this was different. It was 2002, and Bikram seemed to be saying, I own everything about this yoga. The name, the dialogue, the sequence of postures. Everything. Not long after he had filed his copyright, he put it to work. Against Mark and Kim and their Costa Mesa studio. He filed the, you know, this big bombshell of a complaint, which, you know, your stomach kind of ends up in your throat when you read it and see it for the first time. Why he filed against us, knowing I was a lawyer, it always amazed me why he did that. Um, it seems like he would have been much smarter to go after a much weaker studio owner. Several months later, Mark and Kim, their insurance company, and Bikram's lawyers all ended up in court. And it became clear why Bikram had gone after them specifically. Mark remembers the judge pulling everyone aside and saying, and He says, all right, let me just lay this out for you guys. What this is really stems from is he's really upset that Kim left the Beacom family. That's, that's the basis of the, of the whole complaint and the motivation. The judge saw that Bikram wasn't just after a copyright violation. 
He was after control over one of his favorite students. And then he looked at the insurance company and said, you know, you've got a rich Indian over there who's emotionally charged, and he's going to go all the way. And although he will probably lose, it's going to cost you guys a lot of money, so you may as well settle. So they did. Per the terms of the settlement, their insurance company paid an undisclosed amount. And Mark and Kim went back to their studio and went on with their lives. For Bikram, the settlement was proof that his copyright was ironclad, a weapon that he could use against any studio owners or teachers who tried to cross him. For some people in the community, like Martha Williams, his claim to own Bikram Yoga made sense. It's not like he's trying to copyright or trademark all of yoga. He's trying to protect a very, very specific thing in the way it's taught. When Quincy Jones, my student, takes him to Mipa, create a melody, become a song, you can copyright that song. I picked up 26 postures, I put in the sequence like a melody. I created that. Someone put it really well. They said, imagine Arnold Schwarzenegger put together a workout with weights. You know, you do 15 curls, and then you do 25 flies, and then you do this kind of thing, and you do that kind of thing. And then you make that the Arnold Schwarzenegger workout. And then nobody can do the weights that way unless you're going to get sued by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yoga it belongs to the earth. It's a god. But I picked up a piece of it, and I created something. He didn't give the yoga to the world. The yoga was there 5,000 years back. Kavya Dutta is from Calcutta. Her bloodline is as close to pure yoga royalty as you can get. Her family tree descends from both Vivekananda and from the family that gave the world Yogananda and Bikram's own guru, Bishnu Ghosh. Not only the two most famous yoga families in Calcutta, but two yoga families that were critical in bringing yoga to the West in the 19th and 20th centuries. Hot yoga, as he claims it, if we look back, there was this um, practice in India, which is, in Bengali, we call it uh, Poncho Ugni Tapusha, which means you sit around, you know, you are a yogi, you sit around a ring of fire, you sit in the middle, and you do your meditation. What does that mean? It means some version of hot yoga existed a long time before Bikram came along. Kavya actually went to one of Bikram's teacher trainings in 2012, She says his famous sequence of poses that he takes credit for creating, they looked very familiar. Okay, there's this little story I would want to share. When I was about three, four years old, my grandmother used to teach me yoga. My grandmother used to teach me similar sequence, which Bikram claims that he has put together. And when I went to Bikram, when I saw that, you know, he claims that sequence to be his, he claims that sequence to be uh, something that he has created, I couldn't believe it. I said, you know, this is something I have done all my life. You know, I can't see that you have created it. Did you ever discuss that with Bikram? I did, but he didn't, as usual, he didn't quite pay heed to it. When Kavya got back to Calcutta, she told her dad about Bikram's yoga. So my dad said, yeah, because people doesn't know it there. They know him. They don't know you. They don't know what we have been taught here in Calcutta, in India. So 
He's just putting it in a new pack, as, as I understand it. He just put it in a new pack and sold it like his, but it was not his. I'm sorry to say that. Kavya's real problem with what Bikram did isn't about money. It's about respect. The, the most surprising part was, you know, the yoga that he'd learned here, that he'd named it Bikram Yoga. It could have been Vishnu Yoga. It could have been Ghosh's Yoga. It could have been anything else. If he would really pay tribute to his master as he, you know, keeps claiming that my guru and my guru and my guru. So you should have named it after your guru, not yourself. You can't just pick up something and I can, you know, I'll pick up tomorrow. I'll pick up uh, 14 postures from there and I'll name it Kavya Yoga. I can't do that. You're, you cannot do it. You know, there has to be some sanctity to whatever you've learned, you know, towards your guru, towards yourself. Bikram had a place for his guru, Bishnu Ghosh. He was front and center in the origin story that Bikram told again and again about his own rise from the dusty streets of Calcutta. His perfect little tale about how he linked up with his guru, became a yoga prodigy, and went on to invent his hot yoga and save a president's leg. That's why I'm Bikram. (laughs) I'm a real yogi. But truth with Bikram is a tricky thing to pin down. His stories about himself always veer towards mythology. He intersperses these exaggerations and outright lies with hyperbole. Author Benjamin Lore. So he'll also claim, I invented the disco ball, or I taught the Statue of Liberty how to do yoga, and that's why she can stand up all day and her back doesn't hurt. And that's obviously a joke. And then... If you call him on the fact that he was not teaching the Beatles yoga in 1959 because the Beatles didn't exist, he'll be like, ha, 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 obviously I was joking, you you humorless prick. And that's how he works. It's pretty easy to prove Bikram didn't invent the disco ball. It's unlikely he wrote any scenes in the movie being there. At one point, he had to stop telling people he had won an Olympic medal in weightlifting because, well, the internet came along. And a simple search quickly disproves that fact. It's hard to pinpoint exactly what his encounter with Richard Nixon in Hawaii was about, and if that's how Bikram got his green card. But the truth I really wanted to get to the bottom of was Bikram's place in the history of yoga, in particular his relationship to the man he called his guru, Vishnu Ghosh. And to do that, I had to go to India. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Kolkata. The outside temperature is 26 degrees Celsius. Please remain seated and do not open the overhead bin until the signal sign is switched off. I started by trying to find where Bikram grew up. So, so first, where are we? This is uh, the Bag Bazaar area, an old part of Kolkata. Where uh, my fixer took me to a part of Calcutta called Bag Bazaar. It's a neighborhood that has changed a lot. There's lots of new construction, lots of turnover in population. But still, within 45 minutes, just going from shop to shop asking. I found exactly where he grew up his childhood house. He said it's the house with a huge entrance door. It's the biggest entrance door in this area. Eight Mohendra Bowes Lane. We found it. <laughs> we did. <laughs> so it's not that hard after all. From there, it was about a mile and a half to the school where Bikram trained, Gosha's College. 
Ghosh's college was the place where Bishnu Ghosh tried to accomplish his life's work, to spread yoga to as many people as possible. Romit Banerjee's grandfather was a friend and student of Bishnu Ghosh. He said if a, the, the way a Bengali eats food, rice, fish, I want to spread yoga in every household so it will be an extension of their life. I feel like that is probably surprising to an American audience, right? Like they probably have this perception that everyone in India has always done yoga. No, never, never. At Ghosh College, I met Bishnu Ghosh's granddaughter. Hi, I am Muktamala Mitro, granddaughter of Bam, late Bhamacharjo Bishnu Charun Ghosh. Now I am mani, trying to run this college. My grandfather was a pioneer of yoga. He established this college and started the therapeutic yoga. Ghosh did more than simply make yoga popular. In some ways, he deeply changed it. When the British colonized India, they brought the practice of physical culture with them. And Ghosh was among the Indians in Calcutta who were profoundly influenced by this. He was also very interested in bodybuilding. Many of his students also learned bodybuilding, building and Mr. Universe. To Ghosh, yoga and bodybuilding were basically about the same thing. The strength and majesty of the human body, pushing it to its limit. When he opened his College of Physical Education in 1923, India was still under the control of the British Empire. And bringing yoga practice into the realm of physical culture was an act of revolution, an attempt to elevate an Indian tradition and celebrate the beauty of Indian bodies. For Ghosh, one of the most effective ways to spread his revolution was spectacle. The stunt shows like supporting elephant on chairs, supporting road roller on chairs. She's talking about a steamroller. A number of Ghosh's signature tricks involve something heavy running over one of his students. The most famous is laying a strongman on a bed of nails and having a motorcycle run over the person. He did it! Vishnu Ghosh was a showman. In America, Bikram had told a simple and compelling story about himself as the one who had married yoga and physical culture. A story that allowed him to take credit for that innovation. But in India, the truth is different. It's Ghosh who combined the elements of East and West. It's Ghosh who figured out how crucial showmanship was to spreading his message. And it's Ghosh who first wanted to make yoga something everybody everywhere could do. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And you know Bikram, it's the hot yoga, very, very hot yoga. Ask someone who takes Bikram yoga about Bikram yoga, and chances are they will try to convert you. And the reason for that, one man with one very big plan. Bikram launched his first studio in this country in 1973. In 2003, he says there were 450 studios around the world bearing his name. At its height, 
there were reportedly 650 Bikram yoga studios in America alone, with teacher training creating more and more potential studio owners twice a year. Studios could barely keep up with the demand. In the studio I worked in, the 6.30 p.m. class would be over capacity, regularly. People would get turned away from a yoga class. And our studio wasn't alone. This thing was a trend. It was a phenomenon. Bikram became part of the cultural lexicon. Oh, oh I thought it was the guy's name was Bikram. I'm sorry. Jason Bateman talked about Bikram on Letterman. The guy's name is Bikram. The guy's name is Bikram, but Yoga Dave is old. I understand that, but it's the Bikram that I've heard over and over there again. There is Bikram, yes, there is Bikram Yoga. That is a man's name. And what Bikram's hook is, is that he turns up the heat so high. Right. In his, in his studio, that if you were if if you were confused that you were in hell, he makes it very very clear. <laughs> Bikram kept telling his story, and people were buying it. However, authentic or inauthentic the path he may have taken to arrive there, Bikram Chowdhury had managed to create an empire. I built an empire. Yep. Why not? Half a billion people has been benefited directly, indirectly, from Bikram Yoga around the globe. That empire, though, was built on a pretty shaky foundation. You know, when someone opens a studio or they open a franchise, if you think about a franchise, you think McDonald's or Starbucks, and clearly there's infrastructure and information and some kind of boilerplate formation that you would form your studio or mimic it afterwards, or at least advice. But there was none of that. Studio owners like Martha Williams in Minneapolis got none of that because, despite everyone always talking and writing about Bikram's hundreds of studios, they didn't actually belong to Bikram. They weren't franchises. Instead, there existed this ill-defined trade between studio owners and Bikram himself centered around their ability to use Bikram's name. Eric Jennings, who met Bikram and hated him and then loved him and then went to training, eventually decided after training, like so many others, to open his own studio. When I opened my studio in Atlanta, I was an absolute nobody in the, the Atlanta yoga community. So if I were to open Eric Jennings' yoga studio at that time, I don't think I would have had any ability to draw customers. But Bikram had created this brand the first hot yoga brand. And so it was mutually beneficial for him to allow me to open a Bikram yoga studio because I was increasing his visibility. I was increasing the Bikram yoga footprint. I was helping him to grow his brand. The benefit was was tangible, but it wasn't directly financial. Val Sklar went to teacher training in 1998 and opened her Pasadena studio that same year. There was no money involved going his direction. There was no franchise agreement. There was no affiliation agreement. We've never paid a franchise fee or signed something, an agreement, to that end, to be affiliated with him. Bikram left millions upon millions of dollars on the table by not properly franchising. But what Bikram got instead of money was control. My recollection is it was a three-page contract, and it was primarily concerned with ensuring that I would use Bikram's legal language and terminology when referring to the yoga. For example, my business name had to be Bikram's Yoga College of India-Decatur. 
I had to refer to my classes as Bikram Yoga. I had to agree to only teach Bikram Yoga and to not teach other styles in my studio. I had to agree to only hire certified Bikram Yoga instructors. And I had to agree to have carpet in my yoga room and mirrors on the wall. Carpet, mirrors, certified Bikram teachers, 90-minute classes. That's it. And even more important to Bikram than the mirrors and the carpet and the 90-minute classes was that every class had to be taught exactly the same way. The dialogue. The dialogue. The dialogue. Interlace all 10 fingers underneath your chin. All 10 fingers interlock position. Underneath your chin. Pull up on your thighs. Concentrate, meditate with me. And please begin to inhale. It's called the dialogue, but it's really Bikram's monologue. It's based off a transcription of Bikram teaching a class, down to the broken English and out-of-date phrases. One of the more widely known and ridiculed phrases is um, when we're in a forward bend hugging our abdomen against our legs, he describes it as like a Japanese ham sandwich. The dialogue was what Bikram hammered home at teacher training and to new studio owners. It let Bikram be everywhere at once, let his words be the words that every single Bikram student would hear. It's like the IKEA approach to yoga. The dialogue, as faulty as it may be, was brilliant in that it allowed him to really mass produce a particular approach to a yoga sequence. And I think that I think that really was the most revolutionary thing he did. This was Bikram's real innovation. The sameness of the sequence, the mass production of yoga. And this is what allowed Bikram to spread his yoga much farther than Ghosh ever did. Inhale, arms over the head. Get your hands palm together. Nice and tight grip. Palms together, interlace fingers, release index finger, nice tight grip. No gap. Stretch up to the ceiling, go right and left a couple times. Right and left and right and left and right and left. People would disparagingly refer to Bikram Yoga as Mick Yoga. And I understand that that was meant as an insult, but I also understand that that was largely consistent with Bikram's intention. Why not? What's wrong with that? I eat Big Mac. That means their means is getting more popular, you know, spreading out all over like McDonald's. For a lot of people, this Indian yoga guru was maybe embracing the American way a little too much. The very concept of selling a spiritual practice has offended some traditionalists. Yoga is based on five principles, including don't be greedy. It became a question of authenticity whether Bikram could be both a yoga guru and a wealthy businessman. America's changing yoga. It's turned it from a spiritual discipline into a fitness routine and a marketable commodity. This Eastern practice was quickly becoming big business in mainstream white America, like billion-dollar industry big business. By the early 2000s, nearly 20 million Americans were doing it. Madonna wrote a song called Shanti Ashtangi on a record that went on to sell 16 million copies. It was Americans who were fueling the yoga industry and driving its growth. But it was hard to stomach a guru who flaunted his wealth and his power the way Bikram did. It was hard to stomach a guru who behaved more like a spoiled American than what was thought of as a real Indian yoga guru. Our idea that he's some kind of spiritual teacher... That's where your own perception gets in the way of you thinking it's good or bad for him to have a Rolls Royce or 12 or 20 or whatever. You know, that's so American. 
to have that kind of wealth and flaunt it in a way. And I think the only reason why it was wrong for him was because he was a yoga teacher. As his brand grew what felt like exponentially, it exposed the essential tension in Bikram's empire. On the one hand, he had all this control and power, but on the other hand, looked at as a business, what he had built was an absolute mess. My name is Chad Clark. I worked for Bikram personally for several years. I worked for many studios around the country. When Chad Clark first tried Bikram yoga in 1999, he was anything but a yogi. I was 235 pounds, I had a 19-inch neck, I had 19-inch biceps. I looked like I played for the NFL, because that's what I thought health was. But the yoga helped an old back injury, and so he decided to stick with it, which is how he found himself walking into Bikram Yoga NYC in Manhattan. The first thing I noticed was an acrid smell of formaldehyde from an electrical device melting. Now, I had been an electrician. I knew right away that they had a serious issue. And I said to the uh, girl at the desk, is the owner here? Because I smell smoke. And she was like, shh, shh, keep it quiet. No one wants to know about that. Chad could smell their thermostat starting to burn. Because even as Bikram Yoga Studios started popping up by the hundreds around the globe, that fundamental question of how do you keep a room at 105 degrees for hours on end had never been answered. No one had any clue how to build a hot room. And it's not like you just turn the heat on. It doesn't work. You have to have special thermostats. You have to have special equipment that can take higher return air temperatures. But studios didn't have all that special equipment. They were built out by plumbers and electricians devising workarounds to trick thermostats to stay on and sustain temperatures far higher than they were designed to run at, which was exactly what Chad had to undo at Bikram Yoga NYC. I renovated it, repaired brought things to a reasonable level of safety. Word soon got around that Chad was Mr. Fix-It, a reputation that preceded him when he arrived in L.A. for teacher training. Bikram put him to work immediately. Everything was completely illegal. The entire facility was a hair's breadth away from constant disaster. Chad became indispensable to Bikram, and not just because of his technical know-how. When Chad began traveling around the country, visiting studios and advising them on their construction, Bikram gave him a second job, to be his spy. He would send me out to go visit other studios and record them or tell him if they were teaching anything but or anything different or anything else. You know, like if there was anything deviating, he would call them up and say, I'm taking away your right to use Bikram. You can't teach Bikram anymore. If studio owners crossed Bikram, he would do everything in his power to cast them out of the community. He'd publicly denounce them. He'd take their studio names off the official directory on the Bikram Yoga website and strip them of their right to operate. I remember being there thinking, Bikram's like Jabba the Hutt, with all his little minions around him whispering in his ear, oh, she did this. Oh, Susie's teaching 60-minute classes in New York. Oh, oh, Bikram, let me tell you this. And it was, he cultivated this. Bikram wanted to make sure that no one was changing his yoga or challenging him, not even his wife, Rajashree. With Bikram's organization, if you asked Rajashree and she said yes, most of the time, Bikram would countermand it because he didn't want her to have any power. Because of his ability to solve the problem of heating studios, Chad began to unintentionally build up a great deal of power in the Bikram community. 
I was also devising systems that could be used that would cost anywhere from a thousand bucks on up to thirty thousand for studios to take the design. I made my own thermostats. I had my own line of thermostats. Which made him a very popular and desirable commodity among studio owners and would-be studio owners whose businesses literally depended on what he was doing. The students during the training were asking when I was going to give a talk on heating. And Bikram got so jealous when they were nonstop, when's Chad going to give his talk? When's Chad going to give his talk? That Bikram finally thinks, Chad's never going to talk. He's never giving any talk. So forget about it. I took class one day. It was a Saturday at Bikram's place. He calls me in his office. He said, I want you to get all your equipment. And I had a sizable amount of mechanical equipment, furnaces and so forth, out of my warehouse tomorrow or I'm keeping it. And I don't ever want you to come back. So I left. He doesn't want to share the light with anyone else under any circumstance. He is the only person to be in the light. If anyone else is in the light, he leaves the stage. Bikram Chowdhury was always watching. Not only were there people like Chad who would spy at Bikram's behest, there was a powerful unspoken force within the community. The word that a lot of people used was Big Brother. Everyone knew that if word got back to Bikram about someone straying from the dialogue or strict 90-minute classes, that Bikram might sue you or excommunicate you. Studio owner Alex Wheeler knew exactly how it went. Fear Tactics was pretty simple for him in a lot of ways. He would take a leader in the group and cut their fucking head off, and everybody would fall into line. I don't know that I ever fully understood the depth of this while I was working at my yoga studio. After a couple of years, I was getting really good at the practice. Everyone was telling me what a great teacher I was going to be. I was even running the studio for my boss while she was on maternity leave. But I hadn't gone to teacher training yet. In the meantime, though, I suggested that I learn the dialogue myself so that in the case of an emergency, I could just lead the class. But when I brought this up with my boss, she made it clear that this was not an option. It wasn't even something we could discuss. I remember being really hurt by that, taking it personally, thinking it was somehow about me. But it wasn't about me. My boss understood the ramifications. I didn't. I didn't appreciate that someone would inevitably tell Bikram and she would be cast out. Just like Tony, just like Chad. Students cannot open the mouth. Get the fuck out of here. Bikram understood the power he wielded. That he could decide to functionally close a studio or ruin someone's career. That you could only have a career in the first place if you paid $10,000 and came to him to get trained. That you had to survive whatever he threw at you, not let him steal your peace, all just to get his blessing to teach his yoga. And in 2006, when teacher trainings moved out of the limited space of headquarters and into enormous resort hotels with Bikram occupying a private suite, that power and what he did with it went to some very dark places. Places so dark that most people weren't even aware they existed. Places where he ruined more than just careers. Welcome to Bikram's torture chamber to kill yourself for the next 90 minutes. 
Janelle Leet was wide-eyed and innocent and just 21 years old when she went to teacher training to study with Bikram. Imagine what it's going to be like when people ask me, what do you do for a job? And I would say, oh, I'm a Bikram yoga teacher. And when she left training, she wanted to go back. After seeing the staff members that were at my teacher training, I, I saw that, you know, they knew a lot of people. They knew a lot of the visiting teachers that would come in. They were really well respected and they were, you know, on the inside. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to, I wanted to be on the inside. Janelle wanted a future in the Bikram yoga world. And she understood right away that it was a network and success or promotion would depend as much upon working that network as it would on ability. So a couple of years after training, she applied to be on staff, and she got in. You've been chosen out of this group of people, and you're one of the select few. Bikram has handpicked you, and it's just the wording. I remember feeling so special, and I remember feeling very lucky, and like it was just a big achievement for me to, to be picked. She felt like she'd been picked by Bikram himself. You know, my idea of him was he's on this pedestal and, you know, he's this supreme being. But before she left, a friend, who was also a studio owner and had been at training as a staff member herself, had an unexpected warning. You know, I want to tell you that when I was on staff, Yelena, this other girl, she just called me one night and she said, you know, I don't know what just happened, but... Bikram invited me to his room, and, like, he tried to kiss me. And I can't remember 100% exactly what she said, if it did happen or something like this. You know, he invited me into his bed, this kind of thing. Her friend felt compelled to warn her because when you're on staff, you're required to spend a lot of time with Bikram, sometimes alone. But Janelle was not expecting to hear something like this. And more importantly, it wasn't something Janelle was ready to hear. I just didn't really want to believe it. And so she didn't. She filed the story away and off she went to training, this time as one of Bikram's staff. And so I was in the office and I was doing work and I got a call. The call was from her roommate. You know, oh, Janelle, we're watching movies in Bikram's room. Why don't you come? And as soon as she said that, there was something inside of me that went red flag. It was very late. It was like 10 p.m. or something like this. And I was like, oh, it's really late. Like, I, you know, I got to get this stuff done. She goes, oh, it won't be long. Just come up and it, it'll be fine. The way her roommate kept insisting made Janelle feel like if she said no, it was going to be a problem. So I was like, oh, OK. And, you know, he's staying in this big, huge, like, massive suite with multiple rooms and kitchen and just high ceilings and... Already, I felt weird, but I just chalked it up to the fact that it was Bikram and, you know, I viewed him as this kind of celebrity, I guess. And, and it was just, you know, us, us girls and him. Janelle was one of four women watching movies with Bikram in his suite that night. Her roommate Jude's, another staff member Ilke, and Bikram's niece Manali were also there. And he was getting Manali to, like, massage his feet and everything. And, you know, then he would say, oh, Manali, that's enough. You've done it for long enough. Jude's, you can do it now. And so everyone would happily do it. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, I don't want to do that. I hope he doesn't ask me. I hope he doesn't ask me. Like, I'll feel so uncomfortable. And, you know, so slowly he, he dismissed Manali. Oh, Manali, you know, you can go. You can go. It's, it's getting late. And then dismissed Jude's. So it was just me and Ilkay. I don't even think he knew, he knew my name. It was just like, you come over here. Come over here and massage my feet. Eventually he 
dismissed okay okay you can go and oh, I just I just knew I knew that I shouldn't be there he wanted me to you know massage further up his calves okay massage my calves now and oh and now my knees and and all the while he's just intermittently putting in these sort of subliminal messages about how he can never be alone and he always needs to have somebody with him and how, you know, all the good yogis, they get really good massages and it's really important. And as he's slowly telling me to, you know, massage further up and further up and further up and at, at one point he is telling me to massage like right up in his groin. I still could, as much as in my head, I'm screaming, like, what the fuck are you doing? You know, this is not good. You need to leave. I just couldn't. And I, you know, I'm also in my mind going, if I leave, he's going to kick me off of being staff. And if I'm not on staff, then everyone's going to know. And, you know, I care about being a teacher and I love being a teacher and I really respect the job and I am very proud. And so I didn't want to lose any of that. And so, you know, further up, further up, eventually I'm feeling his testicles and, um, you know, he's talking about it's really important to get the, the perineum massaged and um, it releases a lot of tension and it's really healthy for you. And, you know, just speaking so matter of fact about these things and, um, and eventually he got up and he was like, oh, you know, I'm going to go to bed and I, I just need a massage. I need a massage to fall asleep. I reluctantly, you know, in my mind, I'm going, okay, I'm just going to, I'm just going to massage him. And that's okay. That's okay. I can do that. And I've already gone through the whole scenario in my mind. I can never tell anybody about this. So, you know, he proceeded to walk towards his bedroom. And so, you know, I followed and it was dark in the room. There's no lights on, but I could still see like his silhouette. He takes his pants off in front of me and he's fully naked. And then he gets in bed. When he did that, I I was shocked, and I didn't know what was going to happen. He proceeded to get in bed, get, get under the covers, and, you know, he's, like, patting on the bed, like, come and get in. And I thought to myself, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to sit up. I'm not going to lay down. I'm not going to get in the covers. I'm just going to sit up, and I'm just going to, like, massage his shoulders until he falls asleep. You know, because he's still just really making a point of saying, I, I can never be alone. Even when I fall asleep, I need somebody to be there. Eventually, Bikram did fall asleep. Janelle stayed on the bed, on top of the covers, frozen, her mind racing. You know, I'm sitting there bug-eyed. I'm assuming by then it was probably like 2 a.m. or something like this. So I thought, okay, I'll, uh, you know, I know that he's asleep for sure. I'm going to get out of the bed and I'm going to go to the couch. And I'm just going to wait there until I see that it's 7 a.m. Because I know at 7 a.m. I need to go into the office. I need to print out some paperwork. I need to bring it to the sign-in for the morning class. And I need to get all that ready. At 7 a.m., Janelle went straight to the office, and while she was there getting everything ready for the morning class, one of Bikram's senior-most teachers walked in. And she says, oh, you know, how are you doing? And I, I just felt like it just came out of me. I said, yeah, I'm pretty tired. I was in Bikram's room all night by myself. And she just looked at me right away. She knew, like I knew she knew. And at that moment, Jude's came in the office, and Jude's, you know, oh, hey, guys, how's it going? 
Jude sat down between the senior teacher and Janelle, but her head was down and she wasn't looking at either of them. The senior teacher looked right at Janelle. She said, when you girls are, you know, asked to go to Bikram's room, you can never go in there alone. You always need to buddy up. You always need to be with somebody. And Jude's like, oh, yeah, no worries. Of course. You know, that's, yeah, like she's really bubbly about it. And she kept doing her thing. Clearly, Janelle wasn't the first young woman who had talked about an uncomfortable or inappropriate incident with Bikram. She looked right at the senior teacher who mouthed the words. She's pointing her finger at Jude's and she goes, she doesn't get it. But the senior teacher did get it. And it became clear to Janelle that there were secrets. There were people who knew what was going on. There were people who didn't. There were people you could tell. There were people you couldn't. And there was a protocol, as unsatisfying as it might be, for how to deal with the problem. Basically, instead of stopping the man from doing what he's doing or somebody saying something, let's just make sure that all of these women are buddying up so that we can be safe against this man instead of saying anything to anybody. You know, that was the defense. That was the way to deal with the situation. But that kind of solution, women talking amongst themselves, going around the real problem, can only hold for so long. 